well, why don't we just get started? So, again, the, the, I, I really think I'm, I'm, I almost pretty much stick to this sense that I think it is really the next best thing to sliced bread, not that I eat a lot of bread, but I mean, I think that the, this point of care ultrasound, the ability for the, the bedside clinician, no offense, <laughs> to take a history and try to understand why is this person, say, hypotensive? And while we can ask our expert sonographers to say, hey, can you take a look at the heart? Or can you look at whatever? And they can tell you, yep, the heart's doing this, and this is the function, and this is the EF, and here's regional wall motion abnormality. But I think as providers, if you're at the bedside doing point of care, you can incorporate that and say, okay, this person's hypotensive. Is this reduction in EF? Does that make sense? Is that sufficient? Is there something else going on? What else do I need to think about why this person's hypotensive? Or if this person's hypoxemic, try to understand, well, why are they so short of breath? and kind of working through various protocols. And I think that's really the benefit of the point of care ultrasound. And the other thing is, as you're getting started in this, I'm going to take you back to your earlier training in anatomy. I think knowing anatomy is really helpful in trying to understand how do I need to maneuver my probe to get to the, the image that I'm looking for. So when we talk about, for example, in the heart, peristernal long axis. Well, what is a long axis? Well, how is a heart, what's the heart's axis? And how do I need to kind of get to the long axis. And if I see more of the right side of the heart and I want to see more of the left, well, where's the right relative to the left? And right, I mean, I think knowing that anatomy, I think will really help you kind of figure out how to maneuver the, the probe to get there. So uh, Mark, he needed to, uh, he's, he drove up here from Florida, so I told him just go. <laughs> he needs to get back. So, and, um, so a couple other people, so actually, uh, Renee and Amy, they're actually um, ultrasound um, uh, techs who are phenomenal, as all ultrasound techs are, but um, uh, I unashamedly uh, took some of their slides. <laughs> so I want to give them acknowledgement. So, um, again, so I, I, just really basics of ultrasound, so I don't know if I get, some of you have experience with it, some of you may not. I just want to just briefly touch on basics. And then I think some of the alphabet soups, what we talk about with ultrasound, but I, I really I'd want to spend more time kind of talking about uh, diagnostic possibilities with the ultrasound. So in terms of the basics, really, um, some of the things you kind of need to know, um, really basics are frequency. So these probes, so the standard probes, they have different uh, probes for different frequency. Come on in, have a seat. Oh. Mine says I should have done that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but um, so uh, frequency, it, and the reason that's important is because that will determine um, kind of what kind of images we're going to see. So there's uh, the, uh, the frequency, obviously, because it's an ultrasound, it's a sound-based device that's going to kind of penetrate and go through the skin um, and give you the image that you're looking for. So higher frequency, higher frequency. So with the higher frequency probe, what it, is, it, what it does is because it's such high frequency, it'll give you great resolution, but it just won't penetrate. So higher frequency pearls, we use that when we're looking for musculoskeletal, when we're looking for vascular structures, looking for something that's superficial to kind of tell you what that, and because it's such, it doesn't give you penetration, it can give you really uh, clean, crisp picture of what you're looking for, where that vas vascular structure is. So this is where we can tell the difference between tendon tear and tendonitis, and we can find fractures, right? We can find foreign bodies, all these, as long as they're um, uh, solid. We can see these things with high definition, with the high frequency probe. Whereas with the lower frequency, because it's lower frequency, it'll penetrate deeper, but you just won't get that great, as good of a resolution. And again, this is where I think different devices will give you different resolution capabilities. But even within the probe, so that what I'm trying to emphasize here is that, so you can see where, um, you can see where uh, the, high, the, the 
high-frequency probe, so you can see those two dots very distinctly. But the challenge with the lower frequency is all of that gets kind of mushed into a single image, so that's why your, your, your image um, quality or the resolution is affected by uh, penetrating deeper. But because you can penetrate deeper, this is why we use that for abdomen and cardiac and so forth, right? So the, the, the different probes, so the, ling, the language is the phase array is a lower frequency probe. That's what we use to do uh, cardiacs and so forth. And it'll give you this kind of a pie-shaped image as the ultrasound wave goes out. Versus the linear array, that's the high frequency, so low frequency, high frequency probe. Again, this is just give you, we won't give you much penetration, but again, it'll give you a crisp picture. And then the third probe that we use often is a curvilinear. Curvilinear is still a lower frequency, so it'll give you a deep depth, but because of this footprint, it just gives you a larger area of ultrasounding, so we'll use that often for abdomen. But you can see where if you just have to have two probes, these two are probably enough. We certainly do abdomen with, a, with just a phase array probe. We can do that. Um, having the luxury of having a curved array will just give you more, more surface space, if you will, to ultrasound and kind of look for things, and so it'll be shorter scanning time. But the, the phase array certainly is sufficient. The other probe would be if you do um, OB, a lot of OB intervaginal uh, probes or uh, intercavity probes. So there's, uh, there are those that are more specific and tailored to your needs. But that's kind of the big basics. An attempt to kind of show you what, um, how you should do the ultrasound. Uh, if this video works, if not, we'll just move on. But um, so what I want to emphasize is so the ultrasound probe, uh, yeah. So that's the linear array, that's the phase array. You'll notice that there's a little bump or some orientation markers on all these uh, ultrasound devices, and that'll correlate with the dot when you have the screen. There's a there's a little orientation dot on your screen. It'll correlate with that, and that's where right side, left side, and so forth. So that's our um, our uh, uh, fast scan model. So kind of looking at the heart, and what I want to emphasize is you want to be comfortable, as with any procedure, right? If you're reaching or you're bending over or you're kind of looking over this way, you're just going to be, I think the more comfortable you are in doing any procedures, the more easier for you for it to manipulate. So body posture. Hand-wise, um, I find that because you need gel to give you good ultrasound image, if you have the gel and the probe on the person's, say, chest, and you're looking at a screen, your hand will drift very easily without you realizing it. So I think it's very important that you try to stabilize your hand. So you can either do what I talk, talk about, the British teacup. So uh, put your finger down and anchor it that way, or just try to get your whole hand down. And I find that because, what's, particularly when you're doing cardiac, right, you got to think you're getting into intercostal space between the ribs, and then you're really trying to find that image. And so it's really small, tiny movements can, can make a big difference between a great image and a so-so image. And because it's such small, tiny movements, having your hand stabilized and then being able to maneuver it that way. So in most of the ultrasounds, I, I recommend you hold it like a pencil so that you have very fine rotational angle, these movements, to be able to really get into that rib space and the tiny movements to try to uh, optimize your image. But you can imagine when you're trying to do cardiac and all of a sudden your image goes dark. Well, why would that be? Why would your image go dark as you're scanning? Have any sense? Yeah, over a rib, because ultrasound doesn't go through ribs. So you're kind of sitting there going, ah, oh, it's really dark. Well, you might then think about just going up just half a centimeter or below half a centimeter, right? So really these tiny movements to get into this space. And so, again, anatomy, right? When you start to realize something's going on, I can't see this image well, then you got to think, okay, what's in my way and what, why, why am I struggling with this? Another kind of pro tip. So, again, being in the intensive care, we get folks with, say, subcutaneous emphysema. The trouble with ultrasound is it doesn't penetrate air well, 
So if they have subcutaneous emphysema, you can't, it's hard to ultrasound. But what you can do, because it's subcutaneous air and it's mobile, I tell, I tell my learners, just kind of massage and press and squeeze the air out of your, that window, then it'll get the air displaced, and now you can alter, actually ultrasound, and you can get great images, right? Similarly, the struggle with abdomen is, like most folks, or many folks, they'll have a lot of gap bowel gas. Again, ultrasound can't penetrate through bowel gas. So if I'm trying to do a right upper quad and ultrasound, and there's bowel gas just really obscuring my view, two options, you can either massage, or you go look elsewhere, look at the kidney, look at the spleen, something else, and then come back to it and hope that gas is kind of passed, right? So you can either massage it, or you can kind of look elsewhere and come back. I find that those are kind of helpful. Another pro trip while I'm there is when you're trying to find, say, cardiac window, um, and I, I'm, I'm struggling to find a particular, say, peristernal long axis. I'm struggling really, I just can't get a good view on that one. Rather than getting frustrated, I say, okay, you know what? I'm going to do a subcostal view. So I'll just move on. I'll look somewhere else and then just go back to it. Because for me, I find that if I'm just sitting there, oh, i got to get it, i got to get it, I just oh, get more tense. <laughs> and so just relax, move elsewhere, and then you can always come back to it. And I find that that's just, is, again, not guaranteed, but often helpful. So body position, how you hold the probe, and just kind of making sure your orientation is right. So for, particularly when you do vascular, knowing right, right is right or left is left, when you're kind of maneuvering your needle, you need to know which way you're going. So that orientation marker, so again, later on I'll show you where that, that dot is and having aligned those things I think will be important. So again, as I mentioned, why the point of care? Again, I think most of you have recognized the, the, the relevant importance of it. So clinical history and then helping narrow the differential. And again, I think in the field where the places I've been where the laboratory tests are unreliable, your x-ray machine may or may not work, and I think having the ability to do additional diagnostic testing, studies have shown that that really helps relieve or decrease some of the stresses of being out in the field and really that diagnostic uncertainty. I mean, all of us, I mean, even in the States, we struggle with that sometimes, right? It's like, ah, oh, should I have given this medicine? Should I get this consult? Should I get the surgeons, right? Not that it's perfect, but if you can do more testing to help rule in or rule out things, I think are super helpful in kind of helping you feel a little bit more comfortable with the work that you're doing. Okay, uh, so, quick case. Um, Try to make a case relevant. 69-year-old, without any past known, uh, uh, known past medical history, no medical booklet. For those of you who haven't out, been in the field, many places they, uh, folks carry their medical record. That's their booklet. Presents your clinic with three days of progressive dyspnea. doesn't tell you much more, so you're uncertain if he has had fever, cough, or any other no-no context. Smokes, cigarettes, but not sure how much or for how long. Very typical. So there's your physical, there's your vital, so tachycardic, low hypotensive, tachypnic, febrile, and it's hypoxemic. Appears old in stated age, respiratory distress without any accessory muscles, difficulty completing sentence. So that's a marker of how short of breath they are. If they're really short of breath, they can't finish a sentence. Uh, tachycardic but regular, and then diminished breath sounds with some crackles. So you do some chest x-ray, hopefully, and then some uh, lab work, assuming that they work. But this is where, again, the diagnostic uncertainty and increasing burnout. So this is where... When we do long ultrasound, so so again, starting off with well, they're short of breath, and we have we don't know what else. So this, as we kind of look through in the lung space, what we can start to recognize is um, the ribs and the rib shadow, and then the lung tissues. So the first thing that we look at when we do long ultrasound is looking for what's called lung sliding. So that's the pleura, that little shimmering. So people talk about ants crawl. I don't know. If, can you see that from there? <laughs> um, so that people talk about ants crawling or, or these things. The idea is because the viscera and parietal pleura, if they're moving as they're breathing, you should see this kind of shimmering space. That's the lung sliding. 
Um, and so if, when we, you can M-mode through that. So M-mode is a particular modality in the ultrasound. And because then you have the, sub, uh, the subcutaneous tissue that isn't moving, so that just looks regular and linear, but right at that space, that juncture where the visceral parietal pleura move, because it's actively moving, it looks very grainy. So to kind of make it pleasant, people, this is called a beachfront sign. So you can imagine here the waves crashing in, nice sandy beach, and ah, isn't that nice? So it's a good thing. So that's so so lung so lung sliding. What we're looking for there is any evidence of something like pneumothorax. Again, particularly in the setting of trauma or other scenarios, looking for pneumothorax. Like some tests, seeing lung sliding says there's no pneumothorax at that point. Not seeing lung sliding doesn't necessarily mean they have pneumothorax at that point. There can be other reasons why there's air not moving along that upper chest. So examples would be, again, in this patient with smoking history, don't know how long, how bad, if they have bad emphysema. So if they have really bad emphysema and you're not getting air into that, say, in that left upper chest, because air is not getting there, the pleura is not moving, so they can have an absence of lung, sound, or lung sliding. Does that make sense? If they have, say, a mucus plug, and again, air is not going there. If they're intubated and they have uh, their right main stem, then we're not getting air on the left. Again, you'll get absence of lung sliding. You can certainly get it with pneumothorax, but it's, you have to, so it's, if you see it, it's, it's a good thing. If you don't see it, it doesn't necessarily mean they have a pneumothorax, right? So again, putting, trying to get those things in context. So this is where, in the field, when, I, when we intubate, A, you can actually see the vocal, vocal cords, so see the ET tube go through the vocal cords, and then after we intubate, we can do a quick ultrasound on both sides and say, do I see lung sliding bilaterally? Then I know I'm kind of in the middle, in the trachea somewhere. It may not be perfect, but I know they're getting air on both sides. So I don't need an x-ray to confirm if I, if I intubate it correctly, right? So this is where I think ultrasound's been extremely helpful. So um, here's an example where there's no lung sliding, right? So right at that pleural lining, there's no shimmering, no movement. So that's absence of lung sliding. And so when we ultrasound through that, this is um, either called a stratosphere sign, like the stratosphere, or a barcode sign. You don't see that shimmering lung sliding. So again, that's what an absence of lung sliding would look like. And again, what's important is anatomy. You've got to make sure you're not looking at this space. That's top of the rib, right? Because it'll never move. <laughs> so this is why you've got to first make sure rib and rib shadow, rib and rib shadow, and then in between is your pleura, right? I think one of the common mistakes that early learners and advanced learners make is we misinterpret the image that we're looking at. So I think it really is important to kind of reframe, and again, anatomy, so that I know rib, rib, so in between has got to be my pleura, and if my, that space isn't, isn't moving, then that's absence of lung sliding. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, lung point. So this is where then, if, I, if I'm ultrasounding a particular segment of the lung, and I don't see lung sliding, what I'll do is I'll actually rotate my probe and then follow that intercostal space to see if actually there's any evidence of pneumothorax. The idea there is, um, again, you can imagine if, if they're supine, the air travels anteriorly, so assuming it's free-flowing um, pneumothorax, air travels. And so at some point, I should see where that gap happens from a, pneum a, a pneumothorax to normal lung. So what we'll see there is called a lung point. So, you, so the idea, so when I'm scanning anteriorly, um, we'll see that there's no uh, there's no lung sliding. If I rotate and follow that intercostal space, the hope is I'll find something like that, where I get that transition point of lung sliding, uh, lung sliding, and then no lung sliding. Then I, when you see that, that's like 90 plus percent sensitive to having an endothorax. But again, not that you'll always see it. But if this is where I'll take the time to kind of look at intercostal spaces and see if I can capture that. 
right? So if you see that, then that's more reassuring. Again, emphasis is if you don't see lung sliding, it doesn't always mean pneumothorax, okay? So you can um, M mode that, and you can see that nice transition point. Other findings in the lungs, so this is called an A-line. So what it is is, so um, it's reverberation of the pleura, because the, the, if the um, lung is dry, it's just this pleura lining that's just reverberating on the ultrasound. So it's, again, many things in ultrasound and the lung is all artifact. <laughs> this is artifact. So what studies have shown is when you see A-lines and you do a quick heart and their EF looks normal, that's dry lung. It actually correlates with what's called a wedge pressure, a measurement of uh, left heart filling pressures. That's dry, normal lung. That's what it'll look like. But what's also confusing is if you see A-lines and no lung sliding, turns out that's actually pretty sensitive for pneumothorax. Um, no lung sliding A-lines, that's pneumothorax, but lung sliding A-lines with a normal heart, that's normal, normal. <laughs> right? So this is the little nuances of ultrasounds. But, but um, that's that. And this thing, this comet tail, that's called a B-line. That actually correlates with B-lines that we see on chest x-rays. All of us will have a few B-lines. Um, so if you see less than three or so, that's normal. But if you see a lot of them, that tells us there's some interstitial process. The first thing that comes to people's mind is, oh, that's, pneumo that's uh, pulmonary edema. But any other interstitial process, so pulmonary fibrosis, bad ARDS, even pneumonia, uh, can give you these, any interstitial process. Any interstitial process can give you a B-line. So this is, again, where, so, for example, taking that patient who's hypoxemic. So I ultrasound, they have diffuse B-lines, and it turns out they have a little bit of pleural effusion, and their EF is down. They say, okay, that's pulmonary edema. I need to diurese this patient. Versus I see a localized B-line, everywhere else looks normal, their heart looks normal, then I worry that this localized interstitial process, maybe that's, that now we're dealing with a pneumonia, and I need to focus on antibiotics. Right? So trying to put these things together. Again, diffuse B-lines, no pulmonary edema, and they're hyperdynamic, I might, and they're really short of breath, and maybe they're septic, I might think ARDS. Right? Some, so you can start to kind of start to narrow your differential based on what you see in different organs and put that all clinically. Uh, pleural effusion, so certainly, so here we're looking at the, uh, the, uh, the right side, so liver, you have the diaphragm, and then you have this anechoic space, because fluid is anechoic, so that'll be your, your um, pleural effusion. Sometimes we can see these complex kind of um, uh, um, inoculations, um, and so you can see that if the fluid is complex versus free-flowing, this would be more concerning, that this is more of an empyema, so again, I might want to deal with this a little bit quicker, versus that one, if they're okay, I might diurese or something like that, right? Yeah, so complex pleural effusion. And then um, hepatization. So uh, the liver, obviously, solid organ with lots of vessels. When the lung gets consolidated, it'll look like liver. It's called hepatization. So when, when you see this, then again, I worry that's, that's consolidated lung. There's a subtle difference. So you can imagine if I have, if I have atelectasis and consolidation, it could kind of look like that. There's a subtle sign called dynamic air bronchogram that can kind of tell the difference. But again, this tells me that it's consolidated, whether that's atelectasis. So in an appropriate scenario, hypoxemic, they're febrile, they've been coughing, I see that, then that's pneumonia. And I'll treat with antibiotics, right? So Lichtenstein is kind of the father of lung ultrasound, and he came with this blue protocol. And so the idea is you start with the first thing, because that's the first thing you'll see, is there lung sliding or not. And then you kind of go through a different branching point. And his study, uh, this was 20 years ago, uh, he basically said, if I, um, if I see B profile, that's a B lines. If I see B lines, he said, that's pulmonary edema. We know since then that while it was mostly true, there are many other things that give you B lines. So it's a, things, it needs to be updated. But it gives you a sense that 
you start with the, B line, uh, the long sliding. Is our B line? Is our A line? Is our combination of things? And so it kind of takes you through a differential. And at least when he studied it, he said this was about 94% sensitive to giving you one of these diagnoses. So again, as you work through this, this is where we incorporate a lot of things. So if there's lung sliding, the lung looks dry, so there's A lines, and there's really nothing else, then I start to worry about, well, maybe it's a PE. So I do a lower extremity DVT exam, and they have a clot, that's a PE. Then I'll treat him as a PE, right, kind of an idea. So, so again, he kind of came up with these kind of different algorithms to help you. So when someone's hypoxemic, because so they're hypoxemic, they're cyanotic, so they're blue. So blue protocol to kind of help you work through that process. Just a, a, couple, a couple slides on COVID. So what we also know, interestingly in COVID, is that rather than B lines, we see this diffuse kind of uh, increased echogenicity. It looks very gray, much more gray than we normally see. And what's also interesting is right at the pleural line, we see a lot of these pleural fractures. So it's obviously not broken, but they've got these consolidation subpleural space. So it looks like their pleural line is broken, and we see this diffuse B. It turns out that's pretty. It's been pretty sensitive and in, in, in ruling in um, COVID. Okay, so look to see why he's dysmic, but he's also hypotensive. So with him being hypotensive, what can we look at? So again, protocols. Uh, ER guys did a lot of this. So rush or rushed um, exam. So looking to try to understand, well, why is this person hypotensive? This is where our cardiac views come into play to see what is our cardiac function like? Is it reduced? Is it normal, abnormal? We look to see, well, can they have, um, did they have either um, a blood, in, uh, blood or fluid in their, in their uh, lung space? Is there blood perhaps in their abdomen? So it's kind of, if they have trauma and we're worried about, uh, <laughs> Sorry, hemoperitoneum. We can look at the uh, couple of pouches to see if there's uh, blood or fluid there. Look and see their bladder is it full, is it empty, is it or potentially ruptured. And then we can look at kind of um, different uh, lung windows. So this rushed exam sequence to say, try to understand: is there something going on with the lung? Is there something going on with the heart? Is there something going on with the aorta or the vascular structure? Right? And trying to see, trying to understand: well, why are they hypotensive? So that's the rushed exam, the protocol. So again. Uh, ER guys are, again, as smart as they are, they, they try to help figure out, okay, how do I remember all these sequences? So they came up with this high map. So map, um, for those who's not, um, that map is mean arterial pressure is a, another algorithm for it. So we looked, we say we want their map or mean arterial pressure to be certain level. So we want for their blood pressure to be high. So we want high map. And so they came up with this first look at the heart. So looking for pericardial tamponade, RV enlargement, because, again, if they're thinking about an QPE, uh, hypo or hyperdynamic LV. The I stands for looking at the IVC, so that's the vessel that gets into the heart, so you get an idea of is there, are there volume up, volume down. Um, M is the Morrison's and uh, uh, Kohler is the splenorenal. Uh, we don't talk about that a lot. Most of us know Morrison's pouch, but Kohler's pouch to kind of look to see if there's any blood um, in the abdomen space. Um, also, as you kind of go a little higher to see if there's uh, fluid in the lungs, and looking at the irida and looking at looking for pneumothorax. So again, that's high map, but that's uh, still the idea of using that rush protocol to look at these different structures to help you figure out why they might be hypotensive. So again, two couple different protocols to help understand. Well, there are sequences that you can do to try to help come up with the differential diagnosis and why the person's either hypoxemic or hypotensive. How about a trauma case, right? A motorcycle is prevalent in many of the places that we've been at, I've been at, and um, accidents are very common. So this is where, again, the faster EFAST protocol, that's where our trauma is. ER guys would use a lot to, again, give you focused look at various things. So focus assessment of sonography and trauma. 
extended fast. It's looking, again, basically kind of like the rushed exam, but it's so taking components of it, looking to see, again, is there, is there uh, blood in their abdomen? Is their spleen ruptured? And then the, the EFAST is including the lungs to see, could, do they have pneumothorax? I'm looking for those type of things. So, again, a couple different protocols that's out there. The algorithm, so, again, what, although CT is incorporated in this algorithm, the beauty of this is if, you, if they're unstable and you have a positive FAST, they really probably should go to the EDE or OR. Um, if they're negative FAST, although CT is kind of the thing in many places we don't, if they don't have CTs, uh, the, the suggestion is you rescan them in an hour, half an hour, an hour. You go back and look at things to see if anything's developed um, and anything that's more concerning. Um, abdomen pain, so again, you can look at liver, look for liver cysts. So depending on where you work, they might have different reasons why they might have uh, hepatic cysts. You can look to see uh, gallbladder disease, so gallstones, uh, gall um, polyps. Um, uh, so this, some of the signs would be are their gallbladder wall thickened. Is there a pericolecystatic fluid? Was there a stone? So because ultrasound doesn't go through stones or bone, right? So you see this anechoic space that goes below it. And again, if you're like, ah, is that something in the gallbladder? I'm not sure. You can actually have them roll because it should be free moving. You roll and then that gallstone should actually move. That's one way you can tell the difference because every once in a while we'll see um, uh, malignancies in the gallbladder. And so you can kind of have them roll and see if this thing moves. And if it moves, it's gallstone. So, again, if it's really massive, then that's like I don't worry about it because that's not going to pass. They might have spasms and things, but it won't pass. But the small ones are the ones that we worry about, right? So this is where we can kind of look for gallbladder disease. You can actually see pancreas. Um, again, some people it's a little harder to scan, but if you had the right anatomy, so basically you put the probe uh, transversely over a, over a spinous process, you find the aorta and the IBC, and you find the um, uh, splenic vein, and right over it is the spleen. So certainly, if they have uh, inflamed spleen, uh, inf- I'm sorry, pancreas, inflamed pancreas, it becomes much more evident. But you can start to look in normals and see, if, can I see this, if you get this orientation, this this and at this uh, position to see if you can find a spleen. It's often we can find it in normals, but um, much like appendix, you can actually see appendix in an ultrasound. It just takes work. The trouble with both the spleen and the appendix is this can, can flop in many, multiple directions. So it's not always exactly where you want it to be. Like the heart, okay, the heart, long axis right here. But the gallbladder, although often it's in the kind of right upper quadrant, but that thing could potentially kind of shift axis as uh, I think I'm, I think I've seen it that way. <laughs> I've struggled with it. but So it can sometimes shift axis, but the appendix, too, that thing can kind of move in multiple directions. Even in acute appendicitis, it can kind of move. But, again, if you kind of take the time and look, look at anatomic markers, um, you can sometimes see the appendix. HIV and suspected TV. So there's, again, um, there, are, there is a particular ultrasound uh, protocol uh, called a FASH um, Focus assessment with sonography for HIV TV. So looking for kind of in the liver, spleen, lymph nodes, and fluids, looking for these things in the right context of patients with certain diseases. So that's what this is a um, uh, enlarged uh, uh, peripatic lymph nodes. You can see this small little micro abscesses in the liver or spleen. So when you in the right context, then you start to think that these are involvement secondary to those diseases. Other things. So. Um, Doing an LP, sometimes you worry that, you know, often here in the States, if we need to do an LP, we'll often get a CT scan because we worry if there's something happening in their brain and their brain intracranial pressure is high, you can imagine if I stick a needle, that might cause the brain to herniate if the pressure is really high. So one of the things we often like to do is do a scan of the head to see what their intracranial pressure is. But in the field, you might not have the luxury of doing that, so you can do an interocular ultrasound. 
if you're ever going to do this, a couple of things. A, get a saran wrap, because putting gel right in the eye, that gel is going to burn <laughs> if it gets into the eye. So if you're ever going to do that to your friend, <laughs> um, put, uh, get some saran wrap, or Tegaderm works well too, but saran wrap over the eye and put a lot of gel. And you use a linear array, and you basically scan straight back. And you can, again, this is where, and rest your hand on the nose. Don't, you know, make sure you don't press on the eyeball, because that's also not pleasant. <laughs> so you can rest your hand, kind of rest your hand on the nose, on the bridge of the nose. And again, just kind of slowly just kind of scan through the eye. And if you can get right to the optic nerve, um, so the thing I remember is three by five. So three millimeters in. If it's less than five millimeters wide, and you'll notice you'll see this anechoic and hypoechoic, you've got to go all the way out to the hypoechoic space. So three millimeters in, if it's less than five millimeters, their intracranial pressure is normal. If it's greater than six, it's probably abnormal. It's most, it's most likely abnormal. If it's like 10, it's definitely abnormal. If that five to six, it's like, ah, I'm not sure. <laughs> so there's a window, and it turns out it's, again, not perfect. But in the context where I'm worried about, say, I have to do an LP or I have to have a trauma and I'm worried about the intracranial pressure, if it's less than five, you can be pretty reassured they don't have increased intracranial pressure, right? Other things, so uh, if, you, and if you need to do an LP, sometimes it's hard to find that landmark. You can ultrasound that. <laughs> you can find the, the spinous processes, so, right, right? So as you kind of scan the middle of the back, kind of you can, and so what I'll generally do is I'll mark it. It's like there's a spinous process, there's a spinous process. I'll mark it with a, a surgical pen, and then, then I know exactly what interspinous inter process I need to get to to do an LP. So you can actually use ultrasound to kind of help guide your LPs. Folks with sudden vision loss, so you can see kind of um, retinal detachments. Again, you can, again, this is where you use a linear array, right? But the retinal detachments, you can see vitreous hemorrhage, kind of these, um, these findings. And you can see foreign bodies in the eyes, all right? So this is where, again, super helpful, because I'm terrible with that otoscope. <laughs> I, for the life of me, I can't do anything with it. <laughs> Some of you may be great. That's awesome. But, but ultrasound can really help you look into that, into that space and see, you know, why are they, why do they experience sudden um, blood loss? Because of the vascular structures, you can also look for um, central ret ret retinal artery occlusion. You can color Doppler um, and see what that flow looks like in, in those vascular structures to see is it normal or abnormal. So you can kind of, again, if someone comes in, oh, I've got, you know, I can't see anymore. So all, if it's sudden, then you can start to look um, to see, kind of, again, help narrow your differential. So if someone comes with ankle injury, right, little ankle sprain or whatever, and you're like, ah, oh, what's going on? So this is where, again, you can kind of look to see what a normal tendon would look like, and then what an abnormal tendon or ruptured tendon would look like. So to see if there, is, that, is it just a sprain or is it actually more than that? So you can ultrasound that and kind of tell you if it's a more of a, uh, more of a tendon rupture, if it's a tendonitis. Um, so you kind of tell the difference between the degree of trauma to the musculoskeletal structures. So tendon, so tendon tear versus tendonitis. So again, it can kind of see what, what as, as kind of, what that tendon structure looks like. So again, this is where I think right now, as you're just experiencing this, looking at a lot of normals, and say, okay, that looks normal, that's normal, that's normal. Because right, there's no symptom. And now then when you start to know what normal is, and when you start to see what's abnormal, fluids in that space, very irregular looking tendon structures, then you know that there's something going on there. And again, like the picture before, if it's completely broken or ruptured, then you know that's a complete tendon tear, right? Fractures, so you can look at the bone line, and it's connect the dots. If, it's a, if there's a discrepancy in that line, you know there's a fracture. So again, very so or, or you know the, the uh, uh, green stick fracture of our pediatric population. So again, if it's just if it's this if its angle is wrong, it's not anatomic. Then you know there's either a complete fracture or a partial fracture, and you can find that. 
So this is actually, again, not that rift fractures are huge, but obviously if they're very symptomatic, turns out ultrasound's more sensitive than x-rays in finding rift fractures. Just because you can fi- follow that, that cortex structure a lot easier with an ultrasound than with the x-ray. Testicular pain, just another thing you can, you can um, look for, orchitis. Um. So uh, other common things, cellulitis um, versus necrotizing fasciitis. Cellulitis, um, because again, you know, you'd imagine it, right? It's kind of swollen, looks a little edematous. So you'll see what's called cobblestoning. Um, for those of you who are a little bit um, uh, familiar with that term, looks like cobblestones. That's cellulitis versus uh, necrotizing fasciitis. Because necrotizing fasciitis, you actually have air pockets. And again, as I mentioned, since ultrasound doesn't go through air, you'll see this, these kind of air streaks, um, these anechoic spaces. And you'll see kind of how, again, you'll start to see how it looks very different. And because you have this interface here, you'll, there, you'll see a kind of higher density below the area of, of this, the, uh, the evolving necro, uh, necrotizing fasciitis. And then within the tissues, you'll see this anechoic space. So you can differentiate between, is that a simple cellulitis or is this necrotizing fasciitis? Because it's huge for those of you who don't know the difference. Necrotizing fasciitis, you've got to take them to OR and take them to OR like right now. Cellulitis, you go, okay, you've got time to treat them with antibiotics, right? So it makes a really big difference in how you handle that patient. As I mentioned, DVT, you can look at kidneys, so looking for hydronephrosis. Again, if, whether you see um, kidney stones, nephrolobiasis, kidney stones or not. And obviously for a couple of you who do a lot of OB, Super helpful in terms of kind of doing a well baby checks and, um, and looking at, you can measure, you can do various measurements. I don't do, uh, I don't do any OB, but good for you guys who do. But obviously kind of, again, looking at the development, looking at the size, you can do all those things. And if you do it right, get a little thumbs up. <laughs> so, um, so the ultrasound devices that I have in, uh, here uh, um, it, where I work, it's, a, it's called Sonicide Export. It's kind of the higher end ultrasound device. So that's what, so I took that same ultrasound device and I, I scanned it in my um, eFast uh, fast model. So that's on the Sonicide. And this is a butterfly. So again, you'll notice the image isn't as crisp. You don't get as, as fine a detail as you would with a, with a higher end. But at least in terms of size and function, it's okay. It's decent. For those, um, and so I, I think it's, so again, I'm, I'm, and then I'm going to look at kind of different, compare different areas. So that's the heart, and I think I'm going to look at the abdomen a little bit. Um, so abdomen. So again, you can kind of see where that detail, the subtle detail, is, it's not as clean and not as crisp, right? So obviously the higher end stuff is super helpful, but this is like, I think, 50000 40000 or something like that. Um, this is a couple uh, thousand, $3,000 or so that there's a monthly subscription, which can be waived if you're in the mission field and, and those kinds of things, if you uh, apply to the company. But it, 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 just because those are the two that I had at the time when I did this talk, you can kind of see the direct comparison of the two. Um, Clarius, so uh, Mark sent me some images. And again, you can see the Clarius um, device that's actually, I think, for, for a portable handheld device, I really think Clarius is probably a better image in terms of image quality and image clarity. But I think Clarius, they've done a fantastic job in, 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 in kind of maximizing. So this is your liver kidney recess. That's your Morrison's pouch. But you can see that interface. And so, again, just kind of giving you an idea what the image would look like using a Clarius device. So a few of the handheld devices. So that's the Clarius up there. Um, this is Butterfly. Uh, I think VScan now came out with a, uh, with a uh, w- uh, wireless um, uh, device. And then this is the Lumify. I think there's a couple others. I just was told about a ultrasound uh, USC or something. It's a, I think it's a, it's a startup that also has a, a, a portable ultrasound. 
So um, what I find is that um, so the the cost of these things they're in the several thousands. Um, Clarius they don't have a monthly subscription, whereas uh, many of these others do. Like Butterfly, will have, they have there's a monthly subscription that you have to get into to get into the cloud. Again, if you're in the in the field, you can apply for um, for um, discount on these things. Clarius, as with vScans and as with um, Lumify, you need a different probe. So if you're doing phased array versus linear array, you have to have two different probes. So if you think, you know, each of those things are about three, dollars $4,000. That's $8,000 to have two different probes to do the work you're going to do. That said, just uh, heads up, um, Clarius came out with a curvilinear um, probe handheld, which I think the image on that one is actually good enough that you can actually do, if you're going to go with a single Clarius device, the, the, the newest curvilinear is probably, I think, good enough that you might do okay with that single device. But again, because it's a, it's a fully um, independent handheld device, the battery life in these things are about an hour. Um, there's a fan in it. So it's, it's a little top-heavy, and it's a little bigger than your normal ultrasound things that you might be more familiar with. A butterfly, the, the benefit of the butterfly is a single probe, and you can do linear and phase because it's not chip-based. I'm sorry, it's not crystal-based. So in that sense, um, it is actually, and because it's not crystal-based, that's where the image quality degrades a little bit. But the beauty is it's actually a little bit more resilient. You can drop it a little bit, not you know, massively. <laughs> Whereas of these other devices that's crystal dependent, if that crystal breaks or cracks, you, you, this is where you start to lose image. Whereas because this is not crystal-based, it's, it's a little bit more... Uh, rugged. Yeah, rugged. Thank you. That's what I was looking for. But, so, but again, that's where you kind of lose that image quality of it. Um, and then again, these are um, these others. That this is wired. This is, I think, uh, Lumify. I think right now is only um, Android-based. I don't think they have an iOS one. Um, all these others will either be, either be iOS or Android-based. There are um, several, couple websites out there that try to compare kind of the cost and the benefits and these things. Again, happy to answer some of those questions. So really, some quick hand, um, take-home points. Again, um, image acquisition is the first thing. And that just kind of trying to get a good image so that you're, you can start to work on interpretation. But really take the time, I think, in, in interpreting it correctly. Because even, you know, now what we have, I've had fellows that was looking at the left side of the heart and called it, oh, that's pulmonary hypertension, looks like, pulmonary, you know, RV, whatever, right? So you have to make sure you're looking at the right thing and calling the right thing. So first is acquiring that skill to make sure you get a good image. And the second is making sure you interpret that correctly. Like I said, for example, that lung sliding. If you're looking at the top of the rib, oh, there's no lung sliding, I'm worried. Well, are you sure you're looking at the lung slider or are you looking at the rib, right? So just really making sure you kind of take time to interpret. And then I think, again, as uh, providers, you can add that clinical context to what you're seeing and say, hey, does this make sense? Could this explain what, what I'm seeing and why they're symptomatic that way? And I think that's the beauty of point of care ultrasound. Again, for if you, depending on where you work and if you have access to it, just scan your friend, scan your spouse, scan your you know, roommates, whatever. I think the more you scan, I think just, you just start to like many things. You just become more comfortable, more facile with it and try to you know, figure out how do I need to rotate things or um, move that probe differently to get to where I need to get to. There's my email address, pretty simple, straightforward, um, and I really want to give some time to answer, try to answer your questions if I can. So thank you. What questions do you folks have? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, so so Clarius, for example, that's um, Wi-Fi based. Um, so you need it needs to it needs to have some connectivity. Yeah. Whereas something like the um, the yeah, so Butterfly, it'll ask for a Wi-Fi, but you don't have to have Wi-Fi. Okay. The Wi-Fi is if you only if you're going to uh, upload the image. Okay. You can save it on your device. So this is connected, that's connected. So if it's connected, um, again, the whole subscription-based things, you need Wi-Fi, but you don't have to to scan and to save. You just can't upload it. So all of those, you have the capability to save yeah. without. Yeah, oh. yeah. yeah. The, now the the Bluetooth, uh, the Wi-Fi ones, I think I, th- I think you need to have some. Uh, Wi-Fi signal to be able to connect. I think these things will try to connect to each other, but I, th- I think that's often not very reliable. Okay. Yes, sir. Okay, because I've done it without asking for support. <laughs> but ask for support. That's a good thing. Ask for support. I've never asked for that. Yeah. It's always worked. Yeah. So, again, so you just can't upload it to the cloud. I mean, the nice thing about that subscription base is where I'll have folks send me images. Because that's the only way to do that is if it's in the cloud. So say, hey, I'm looking at this hard. What do you think? Or I'm looking at this. What do you think? And so to do that, you need the cloud. But to save it on your device, I don't, I, I've done it where I've not asked for permission. <laughs> Oh, I, I just, I, 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 know, I know, it's like, no more. <laughs> like, sorry, I ruined it for all of you. <laughs> Other questions? Okay, well, I have one more. Of course. Okay. So with the long ultrasound, yep. you know, I know it, it takes some time and it'll come, you know, uh, raising materially. Yeah, so actually, true lung ultrasound, it's 10 zones. So what we do is we look at the, the spinal, the midline, spine, uh, the sternal line, anterior axillary, posterior axillary, and we just basically go across their uh, mid-chest. And so it's zone one, zone two, three, four, and then five on each side. Yeah, so you, we, we do multiple zones. Because obviously, we can only tell you what's happening at that. And so if you're, you know, obsessive compulsive, as many of us are, <laughs> you can look at every rib. But, uh, you know, the idea is if you want to do a quick assessment, at least, so Lichtenstein actually did three zones. We said, well, we're male, we're better. So we said five. <laughs> Sorry. So we'll, do, so we'll do anterior, we'll do lateral. And then we added the fifth, the, the posterior, because that's where you'll see if there's um, pleural effusions. A little bit better than kind of the mid uh, anterior space. Yeah, so, yeah, again, um, the couple of sites, I know there are um, private companies that do it. I, I can't speak for them. I know, so the American College of Chest Physicians, so ACCP, American College of Chest Physicians, has a course, and they have actually, for those of you who need certification, they actually have a ultrasound certification process where you go through the course and you submit images and uh, different organs, and then they review, and then if they're, if they're, I think it's like five to ten images of each organ or each structure, they review, and if, they're, if you've done well and pass the test, they give you a little certificate. So if you need a certification, uh, ACCP, American College of Chest Physicians has it. The, um, the Society of Critical Care Medicine is also another group that does uh, point of care ultrasound courses. Um, and then the American College of Emergency Physicians, ACEP, they have an advanced ultrasound course, uh, certification course. Um, 
for those of you who are very cardiac focused, um, so through efforts of uh, various intensivists, there's a specific uh, critical care cardiology echo uh, exam. So it's not you don't have to do all the t all that all the fancy stuff that the cardiologists do, but it's a uh, but it's a you do an ex- you sit for an exam, you become a test mirror, and you have to do 150 full exams you submit, reviewed, and all that stuff. So it's a it's a it's an arduous process, but there's also a specific exam certification for that too, if you're interested in that certification. But those are probably the the three groups that I'm aware of that I think are that I can kind of vouch for. I think they're solid programs. Sir. Could you say something about overheating of the butterfly probe, and especially in the hot countries, yeah. when you're trying to train people, and they wrap their hands around that thing, and then it'll take 10 minutes to look at something, it seems like uh, you get 10 minutes out of it, and then you're yeah, yeah. I think that, I don't know if you have the first or second generation. This, the, this is the this is butterfly. So again, um, uh, I, I find that I'm able to scan a little bit more. But the, I mean, like it was, as with any ultrasound devices, they will get hot. Like that Clarius, uh, there's a fan built into it specifically for that, and there's a little temperature gauge on the screen that says, oh, "Okay, it's getting a little hot." Um, so the Clarius has it. Um, so it will get hot, unfortunately, as with uh, most ultrasound stuff. So you do need to take a break. I'm not sure how to get around that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't stick it in ice, although it's, it's waterproof. <laughs> Next. <laughs> um, just a quick thing. So you'll notice, um, so a standard phased array probe is about um, uh, two-thirds the size. So because it's larger, that sometimes, again, one of the struggles is because it's such a large footprint, if I'm trying to do cardiac, sometimes it's a little, it is a little challenging, um, just as an aside. But again, because it's, it's a single probe that does all of it. I think there was a question. Yes, sir. The V-scan? Yeah. Oh, extend? No, I, I, I haven't. Yeah, so actually our, our institution, we're looking to go full GE because we're a Sonosite, um, with our, our contract. So, but not, unfortunately, no, I, I don't. I've used the V-scans, um, both the first and second generations, but, yeah. but that's about it. Um, sorry. sorry. Just out of curiosity, yeah. outpatient Yep, yep. Yeah. So again, the COVID lung, what we find, so it's it's interesting. It's just the lung feel looks more kind of higher echogenicity. So it looks more gray rather than the normal aerated lung. But it isn't like the standard B lines that we would see. It's just very homogeneously gray. And we really we pay attention to the pleural line. That um, there's there seems to be some like looks like a pleural fracture because they have these little very sub pleural consolidations. So you see that pleural line rather than being straight, it'll look kind of frayed, and it'll see like these fragments of the pleural line that looks abnormal. So it turns out those two findings are pretty reliable for COVID. But so, but obviously we don't use that for that diagnosis. But oh, isn't that interesting? We'll see it a lot in our COVID patients. Uh, you'll see, we'll, you know, we'll see, we'll see occasions where it's more beeline than that diffuse things. We won't always see the subpleural um, fractures, but but that those would be the kind of the typical findings that we'll see in COVID lung. Outpatient, so, you know, depending on your practice, um, folks use ultrasound for um, injections, 
Um, again, for assessments, ah, oh, my ankle hurts, you know, ultrasound that. I mean, right, so this is where I think a colleague of mine who's family medicine who'll do outpatient practice, but he'll scan for, oh, does your belly hurt? Oh, isn't that neat? Let's take a look at your belly, right? So, that, I mean, they'll find excuses to scan. It is, I mean, obviously, <laughs> you guys are totally busy and probably have 100 patients to see, but if you have the ability um, to kind of pull it out and scan is where some of my colleagues get experience doing that. Yes, ma'am. Actually, my rheumatologist used it to guide for injections. Yep. And it was... Absolutely, right? So, again, knowing your kind of the anatomic structures and finding that space and these things, articulating space or wherever you want to inject, finding, you know, the nerve and things, you can do all of that. And so uh, Dr. Mary, um, he's here, He's but, but um, his practice is all procedural-based, and he, he relies heavily on ultrasound to do all of that stuff. But, yeah, and again, I think just find excuses. <laughs> do you have a headache? Let me scan your eye. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, you have a headache. <laughs> I don't. Yes, you do. You just don't know it. <laughs> Any other questions? Again, I'm happy to hang around. Um, so, I, again, I, I hope this was at least helpful in trying to give you an idea of kind of the breadth of what ultrasound. And I think it's just as we learn more, again, as I mentioned, we do it when we do intubation. Certainly when we do any line procedures, uh, many procedures we use ultrasound-based. But I think our comfort with it are expanding to the discomfort of our radiologist as we take to kind of do more and more of these things. But again, I think it's just, if you have the access, practice with it and try to get as much experience with it. Uh, yes, ma'am. Um, just out of curiosity, not knowing a lot about all of this, but mm -hmm. it's obviously used a tremendous amount in OB. Mm -hmm. Is there risk to the embryo, to the fetus um, with the wavelengths and whatnot? So um, you mostly don't want to use There's risk, yeah. Um, so they typically recommend like that like Different frequency, different noise, different kind of uh, energy potentials, and so Doppler is something we uh, they discourage, um, really, or suggest you don't do in the first trimester. For any thereafter, of time, or is it like first trimester is usually the window that you try to avoid it. If it's done in the first trimester, I, I volunteer at a pregnancy clinic, and a lot of times this is a when they're thinking about abortion, um, a lot of times they will do that, but for a very brief time. So is that more acceptable that it's a brief time? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, um, I don't know if you have thoughts on that, but. They recommend not doing it, because I guess if you're in a situation where somebody is hearing it, you know, yeah, I mean, and someone's contemplating abortion. I mean, I think the hope is, yeah, I think the hope is if they hear that this thing is, that this fetus is alive and beating, that maybe that might have them think twice. So, I, you know, it's, a, it's with anything cost-benefit. For example, x-rays. Oh, if, I, if you have to do an x-ray in, in a pregnant individual, again, we try not to, but if you have to, you have to. And so then we try to minimize the risk associated with what that has to happen. So, yeah. A great question. Thank you. Well, great. Thank you very much for coming. I hope this was helpful. Um, I'll hang around for a little bit if you have any questions. Um, but thank you very much.